Thanks for downloading the Charlie Higson and Friends podcast, which originally broadcast on Scala Radio, a station where we have fun with classical music. It's home to Penny Smith, Simon Mayo, Mark Kermode, and me, Charles Nove. And you can find us on DAB Digital Radio, scalaradio.co.uk, and on the Scala app. Right, over to you, Charlie. My guest on Charlie Hickson and Friends today is Armando Iannucci, and we should take a few minutes here to speak about Alan Partridge, a.k.a. Steve Coogan. Steve has this ability to be Alan in terms, you know, if you lob an idea at him, he'll speak as Alan. He can't... Essentially, though, he is Alan, isn't he? No, no, no. No, no, no. No, <laughs> no, no. 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 I couldn't possibly comment. No, no. I mean, he, he has always accepted there are elements of him yes. in his love of well, I think cars. I it's the same and, with, with um, David Brent and Ricky Gervais. You know, there's the... elements of it, but he based it on other people he knows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, but, um, and so he would never... You know, when we're writing, he's never the one at the keyboard. He he sort of paces around, right. and myself, and whether it was Patrick Marber or Peter Bainham, you know, we'd lob thoughts, ideas, and he would riff as Alan, and we mm. then complete sentences. Well, that's exactly and, how it works when I write yeah. with with Paul. It, yeah, he he. he, he does the Steve role and I do the boring yeah, sitting yeah. at the computer thinking, oh, yes, if I put that bit with that bit, exactly. that'll be a thing. And you end up with like a kind of document that's mm. like 400 pages long and you have to somehow <laughs> turn it into something. Um, but it can be wearing because fundamentally you're spending eight hours a day with Alan Partridge mm. in the room, you know. So it's, it's nothing against Steve, but it's just this... And Alan's kind of raison d'etre is that he cannot stop speaking. I mean, he's a, re- he's a, he's a presenter, <laughs> yes. you know, so, you know, dead air is a crime. He mm. has to... And so when we're getting Steve to riff as Alan, it's non-stop. And in fact, part of the joke becomes adding more and more sub-clauses to his sentences <laughs> so he doesn't quite ever finish in... A, I mean, I can't do him as well as Steve, but there is that sense of... You know, trying to finish a sentence, but then asking yourself, when should a sentence finish? <laughs> should a sentence finish at all? How often do we finish our sentences? I mean, that's the thing. That's a question I'll be asking our listeners in tonight's big question, the big debate, how long should our sentences be? You know, and so it goes on and on. And it, you have to kind of go through the pain barrier with each <laughs> sentence to get to the funny bit. But it does mean by the end of each day, you're just thinking, I never want to hear this guy oh, yeah. speak again. You know? <laughs> Well, I, I remember being at the BBC making The Fast Show yeah. when you were making I'm Alan Partridge. Right. Uh, and it was those days, which was very exciting at the BBC. Mm. The, the, the studios were down on the mm-hmm. underground, In that around kind of the, 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 the ring. The ring yes. were, and you could go from studio to studio. Mm. There'd be Top of the Pops in there, there'd be Jules yes. Holland in there, there'd be the Hairy Bikers in there. Yeah. And uh, and I remember going dropping in to see when you were recording oh, right. I'm Alan Partridge yes. and being quite surprised when I went in that the studio audience are sitting facing Boxes. the back of the set. Fixed, they were watching <laughs> crates. a big wooden wall, yeah. which was uh, yeah. presumably the... The hotel lobby. Yeah, exactly. The whole point. And, and we, as the evening went on, we'd take the front off so that people could see in. But I kind of wanted, because we were making this effectively sitcom, I, I, I wanted, to, I asked myself, what is it about sitcoms that we want to try and get away from? And mm. I noticed a lot of them are very theatrical mm. in that all the people in them are shouting at the top of their voices in a line looking out, <laughs> you know, and I thought, well, that I want it to feel real because Alan's meant to be stranded in this... Um... Yeah, well, it was shot almost as if it was like a 
single camera location yeah. shoot. Wasn't and it? I wanted the actors to be speaking to each other, yeah. not out to the audience, but to be able to hear the audience reaction to time against the louds and so on. And then once the audience were used to it, we would take the fronts mm. off of these things so they could actually see in. Um, and it was about that. And, and so the cameras would be handheld. And so to give it that slightly verite, I always felt sorry for our designer, Dennis DeGroote, because he designed a spectacular... <laughs> Uh, hotel lobby and everything in this set but people just thought we went on location <laughs> to an, a real one so he never got the credit you know because he made it look absolutely amazing and lifelike and the idea was it was um, equidistant between Norwich and London right. for Alan to be able to do his show in Norwich but at the drop of a hat get to London for an important <laughs> meeting and myself Stephen Patrick for research decided to look at a map and see what was equidistant and, and stay at a, a motorway hotel there, which we did, and it was un, unbearable. Because <laughs> um, it was right up against an A-road, and it had a cracked... It had a cracked helipad, as if people would land their helicopters <laughs> there. No one had landed a helicopter there in 30 years. <laughs> and, and so there was a big circle with an H in it that was cracked, and there was moss growing in between the cracks. <laughs> and it was on the a whatever, zooming by. And, um, and the you rest... You weren't able to work that into the series. No, we, we gave ourselves the target of 24 hours, but we didn't last 24 hours. After breakfast, we left. We couldn't <laughs> stay for lunch. The, the, um, the, uh, uh, the restaurant was called Hobson's Choice. <laughs> That's <laughs> that, not understanding what the what meaning that of that is I at know. all, is it? And we did it's still... Like, yes, because we've got a lot of choice. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm called Mr. Hobson. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, but we did steal one idea from it, which was the second episode is set on Valentine's night at the hotel. And that was because at the hotel we were staying at, it had an advert up for, you know, Valentine's night at whatever it is. Uh, I can't even remember the name of the real hotel we stayed at. And it said something like, £25 gets you a, a candlelit dinner for two. Complimentary half bottle of champagne. <laughs> brackets not to be taken into the main bar area. Close brackets. So that was their sales pitch. We'll give you a half bottle of champagne if you promise not to drink it in the bar. <laughs> give us your money. And so we, we thought we must do an, a kind of Valentine's night at um, Alan's Travel Tavern. Well, um, you know, I mean, uh, the whole Alan Partridge world was such a great examination of that sort of strata of... Of English, Englishness. It's a sort of I, yes. Everyone has someone in their family who is Alan. No one is Alan. No one will come up to me yeah. and say, "Ha, oh, <laughs> I'm Alan." Um, they'll say, "I know someone called Alan." And it's that I don't know what it is. It's a sort of uh, there's a business. Fry and Laurie used to do these sketches of two businessmen going for to a Greek restaurant somewhere discussing products, and so I, I, I think Alan taps into that. Um, I don't know what it is. If I did know what it was, that would kill it, really. So I'm glad I well, don't know what it is. Well, let's not talk about that no. anymore, then. The, no. risk of, <laughs> the risk of killing Alan Partridge. <laughs> which we have envisaged often enough <laughs> in our private conversations, <laughs> how he would go. Charlie Higson and Friends on Scala Radio. So, Amanda, we were talking before about presenting styles and, mm. and how you'd sort of used bits of it for... Um, on the hour and the day to day, and and you know with those those Chris Morris things where it was like saying let's do the most ludicrous opening mm. to a to a news show, mm -hmm. and that's what every program now looks like. Yes, we it, use it, for the day to day. We use the graphic designers who who did the graphics for News at Ten on, right. on ITV, and they said. 
can we give you the ideas that we have had to reject <laughs> when the producers at News at 10 had got a bit ad- a bold and adventurous and we had said, no, that's just stupid. You can't do that. <laughs> I remember once John Simpson, when he was like a news presenter on, on the BBC, talked about, I think it was about the space shuttle, and they actually brought in a three-dimensional space shuttle that swooped around him and then landed next to him. And I just thought, OK, we're having that. <laughs> and, and, you know, you, you, you then sort of channeled your um, satire, I suppose it's... You, would you, I mean, it's I don't comedy, know. really, isn't Comedy, it? really, but, yeah. But uh, interest in current affairs and yes. politics into um, the thick of it. Mm. Yes. I, well... Um, I kind of wanted to know how does this work. We just had the Gulf War, where uh, you know Tony Blair, despite all the uh, advice and subsequent evidence to the contrary, yes. was able to you know, put Britain in league with America and invading a country for weapons of mass destruction that, that didn't exist, and all the kind of chaos and confusion that that's brought on. And I wanted to know what is it about how Britain works, how government works, that one person could do that. So I wanted to look at something that explored how the dynamics of politics worked in Westminster. Because most most people... Well, a lot of people have this, you know, it's a conspiracy. But actually, it's the opposite of that. It's just a... Well, I can't use the word that you used, which we went into the dictionaries, but it's, it's incompetence and... And groupthink, you know, yeah. the, the, when there are lots of people involved, no one wants to be the one that makes the final decision. Mm. So it's always deferred to someone else. If someone comes in with a large majority, you know, a prime minister in in the UK with a large majority can do more or less what they want. Mm. You know, they have untrammeled power. But also, is, it is undermined by incompetence and ineptitude. But also, yes, and and the fact that you know, a lot of the time. The thing that we found when we were researching, you know, how things work is that people just don't have time. They don't have mm. time. So those big decisions are made very, very quickly. You know, there isn't the chance to sit down and reflect. And, you know, I found this when we were looking at American politics. Um, um, Madeleine Albright, former Secretary of State, taught her staff what she called bladder diplomacy, which is to be able to stay in a room for up to eight hours when negotiating because that's where the power is. If, if you go to the lavatory... You've left the room and you have left power because decisions might be made when you're gone. So she would seriously teach them bladder diplomacy. And it's frightening to think that, you know, things of great significance are decided in the spur of a moment. Did you know when you were putting it together just how popular Malcolm Tucker was going to be? (laughs) No, because I I always had Malcolm down as, like, the enemy, the the problem, you know, the fault... (laughs) And any any if you well, if you want to kind of overanalyze any episode of the thick of it, it is basically something minor goes wrong. Malcolm comes in to try and fix it, <laughs> makes it worse, and then leaves blaming everyone else. <laughs> that's fundamentally, <laughs> you know, that's fundamentally how an episode of the thick of it goes. But, but you know, it's interesting. No matter how hard you try to create a monster, they always become. The one you love, you know, whether it's Marlon Brando in The Godfather or mm. Malcolm Tucker or yeah. um, Darth Vader, you know, Darth we always Vader want Darth or, Vader and you know, um, yeah. Mordor, uh, Sauron and stuff, yes, yes, yes. Uh, Logan Roy, and yeah, succession, exactly, you know, yeah, um. Who we met, we met, didn't we? Yes, we... Uh, uh, let's get on to that. The, the reason this show came about, in fact, 
uh, was because I hadn't seen Amanda for, for a very long time. Uh, and I was going up to the Edinburgh Book Festival, which happens at the same time as the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Yeah. Uh, and I saw that Amanda was doing a talk, and I thought, of all the people here, the, the one I really want to meet again is Amanda. Um, and I flew up, and we were flying up, and my wife on a, on a flight... By the, it, because we often fly Ryanair where you don't sit together to save money. <laughs> uh, she always sits next to someone. By the end of the flight, she's made a friend for life. Yes, and, you know, and the yes. next thing, they're sort of going off on holiday together. So. Right. <laughs> I am the complete opposite. You want none of that. I want no contact with anyone else. Yeah. I'll get my book out yeah. and, and, and immerse myself So I it. got on this plane and <laughs> sat down to someone who was like, deeply engrossed in a book on one side. I was in the middle seat, so I just spent the rest of the flight chatting to the guy on my other side who was going up to a wedding in Aberdeen. Yeah, and I was sitting there thinking, oh, God, they're talking about Highland weddings. I really don't want to get involved in this conversation. (laughs) And it was just as weird as the flight lands and everyone's getting getting up, and I, I see the guy next to me get up, and I think... Oh, God, that's a man. <laughs> I have just sat next to him on this entire flight to Edinburgh. Well, yeah. I haven't said a, a word, but I managed to track you down. And, and yeah. I came to your event Thank you um, talking about your, your, your book, which we'll talk about in a minute. Mm. Um, and um, he was there, wasn't he? Brian Cox Brian was there. Cox. And the but, actor but, Brian Cox yes, was there, which I Yes, because we did have that conversation when your publicist came over and said, oh, Brian Cox is upset and he'd like to say hello. Yeah. And it was the inevitable conversation, which Brian Cox? Which Brian Cox? <laughs> But we went up, and he was he was charming and, yes, and he lovely. Was. Yes, was yes, that's the first time I'd met him. But a huge yeah. fan of Succession, and, and I and did a complete fanboy on him because my yeah. my son Frank is a huge fan of Succession. Yeah, I think you got and him has, to say to has, swear. Has his sweary uh, catchphrase as his ringtone, and I said to to Brian, I said, I hate to be a terrible fanboy, but could you would it would you please if I filmed you to give a little video message to Frank and tell him to. Um, <laughs> To get lost, to go yes, as, as, to, as to as go Brian. about his business um, <laughs> elsewhere. And and Brian said, and I won't do the accent. He said, no, no, I said I don't mind at all. He said, you know that thing cameo, mm. just where you get celebrities and you can get them to do messages. And he said, I won't give the figure, but he had made an eye-watering amount of money, basically telling people to f off. I know. <laughs> he said, No, I'll happily do that. I thought that's something the Treasury should know because they're trying to fill this <laughs> gap. If Jeremy Hunt did cameo and Rishi Sunak did cameo, they'd make a fortune, and it would all go into the national coffers. I, mean, I think that's better than, you know, <laughs> that would protect the triple lock. I think. <laughs> You know, um. <laughs> so let's have some more music yeah. here on Charlie Higgs and Friends. Uh, here, very a- difficult to get to know as a friend, though, because you know his face is buried in a book most of the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is this is all totally fake. We we barely know each other. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I think you were going to have someone else. I was just walking by and somebody came out and said, have you got a spare hour? Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, it's been, it's, it's, been, it's been a lot of fun talking to you and listening to your music. And this is another of your choices, um, a less familiar piece. Mm. Uh, it, James McMillan, O Radiant Dawn. Do you want to tell us a little bit Well, about this it? is, I mean, James McMillan, uh, I've always loved his music and he, you know, West of Scotland composer, um always been intrigued by him he writes music that's not just for the concert hall but for communities you know he's very involved in community writing pieces and conducting pieces for community choirs and so he will write pieces that can be sound great but aren't intimidating as a as an amateur performer um and also he's tapped into that 
old British choral tradition. There was lots of religious choral music written mm. in the 16th and 17th century. Uh, uh, Thomas Tallis and William Byrd and Purcell and so on. And I think James McMillan has tapped into that. He's his vast output of choral religious works. And this is, for me... It's from his Strathclyde motets, five motets. And this, for me, is just an amazing... You know, it's both modern and yet traditional at the same time. And it's, uh, I think it's a brilliant, magical piece of music. My guest today is Armando Inucci, and that was a choice of his... James Macmillan, O Radiant Dawn. So another piece of music you've chosen, Armando, is Armenian Requiem by Ian Krauss. Krauss, yes, an American composer. Again, a contemporary piece. I mean, written only about ten or so years ago, I think. And I came across this, uh, the equivalent, I suppose, modern-day equivalent of my free record collection in the Hillhead mm. Library is, is being on a streaming service like Spotify, so where one piece you recommended is recommends another piece, and yeah. uh, you, you listen to, say, a requiem by someone and suggested piece, and I came across this piece, didn't know anything about Ian Krause, didn't know anything about this piece. It's a beautiful piece, and it's written really in memory of the Armenian massacre, and that whole disputed area between Turkey yeah. and Armenia, and that whole region. And I remember coming across this piece roughly at the same time as the Russian uh, attack on Ukraine. Mm. And it's a it's a piece. It's it's a mournful piece. It 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 applies traditional uh, Armenian music folk tradition with that more classical uh, requiem, orchestral and choral tradition. And it's a blend of the two. And I find it a very very moving piece. Um, I don't have the the English translation of what's saying, but it, it you can just em- emotionally and and musically, it's something that taps into kind of various national heritages. There's the American and the Armenian, mm. and I find it a, a wonderful piece. Armenian Requiem by Ian Krauss. This is Charlie Higson and Friends. I'm talking to Armando Iannucci. We're talking before about how you come across new music and, and like Armando, I listen to a lot of music on Spotify and I, I do find its recommendations very useful. I come mm. across a lot of music and I put it into a playlist of, of new music. Uh, and a piece that was suggested to me by a Russian singer called Hamlet Gonashvili, um, who was a big star in Russia and then inevitably under Stalin was mm. um, sent away to a camp somewhere, I think, in the end, because he got too big. Um, and it's a piece called Sintskaro, and apologies to any Russian speakers for my awful pronunciation of that. Um, but I thought it was a good companion piece to the Ian Krauss. But Amanda, you, you, you said you eventually got round to performing comedy at Oxford whilst you were doing your PhD, which was on... Paradise Lost, John right. Milton's Paradise Lost. And you, you fell in love with it? I found it amazing, yes. It's... Um... 
I mean, it's an epic, and it's it's about heaven and hell and good and evil and temptation and time and infinity. I mean, all the big themes. Writing a thesis on it was impossible in the end because it, you can't Surely really thousands of it. other people have written theses on it. And thousands have. I thought and you had to write a thesis that someone else hadn't done. I know, I know. I came across <laughs> one talking about humour in Paradise Lost, and there isn't any. But uh, at one point, God smiles, and the, the writer, the academic, called this Jehovialism. <laughs> and I, I thought this is it. This is the best it gets. Um, and I, but I, I spent my time really, because when you're doing a PhD, there's no structure, and I, I need structure. I need deadlines mm. and and so on. And so I got nothing done. I was just wallowing around, thinking, what am I doing? But I, I, I used most of that time to write comedy, put on my sort of one man shows, and 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 then started writing for radio and Radio Scotland and so on. So uh, it was really, you know, I'm indebted to Milton and Paradise Lost <laughs> for my career in comedy. I I made the decision after three years and realizing I was getting nowhere. I the opening line to Paradise Lost of Man's First Disobedience and the Fruit of That Forbidden Tree, I realised had the same rhythm scheme to the theme tune to the Flintstones <laughs> of Man's First Disobedience and the Fruit of That Forbidden Tree. And that's the point where I thought I ought to go into comedy <laughs> rather than <laughs> academia. Um, and I'm but glad you, I made that. But your time wasn't wasted because um, during lockdown yes you wrote a, a an epic poem a in, mock epic yes in the is it in the style in the rhythm in miltonic he called it free verse right which basically meant it didn't rhyme um, yes but there is a rhythm but there's it, a rhythm to it you know which as um, we know now is the theme tune to the flintstones <laughs> yes <laughs> so when you were, and, so and when so you were I writing wrote, your epic poem yeah. did you just constantly run the flintstones i yet? did every episode <laughs> you know because there's lots of incidental music as well um and and um and i wanted to write a piece this was in the middle of lockdown so it was like we didn't quite know how it was going to end and where it was going everyone was isolated and yet somehow there was a communal sense as well in that we were all going through it, we were all banging our pots and pans and clapping on a Thursday night and so on. Uh, so everyone had a big story to tell and yet we all had our own individual stories to tell and I sort of wanted to write something that reflected that mm. situation. And it's called, it's called Pandemonium. And, it, and it's essentially about, it's a sort of heroic epic about Boris Johnson but, defeating... Well, um, he's called... Um, He's called Orbis Rex, which yeah. is Latin for king of the world. Yes. And the gods send Orbis down onto Earth, but know that Orbis Rex would be too frightening a name to give someone who walked among humans. So they turned Orbis into Boris as a more friendly... So that must have been a happy moment where you realised... When Orbis I realised that. Well, it was all meant Boris. to be. <laughs> and this poem just was me almost like verbally doodling to start with. I had no mm. intention of writing anything to publish or writing anything that would be a long form. Mm. I just started writing bits and, and over the months I would take it out and add a bit more and add a bit more and eventually it grew into something that I thought had a kind of structure to it. And, it's, and pandemonium, by the way, is a Milton... Milton invented the word pandemonium. Right. It features first in Paradise Lost. It's where Satan... And it almost has the same meaning as... As, as now. As I, your word that you got into the dictionary. Well, omnishambles. Oh no, it's omnishambles. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. Well, both of them, in fact. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes, and it's where it's where uh, Satan. It's it's the home of Satan when he's fallen yes. from heaven and he carves out a new place in hell. Um, and I wanted to write a poem that had that sense of good and evil and battles and yeah. and innocent people well, being it's, caught it's, up it's, in it. It's very. 
I have to say, it's extraordinarily well done. It, it does read incredibly well. And it manages to be serious and funny at the same time, which I think is probably a description of a lot of what you've done. Well, that was the idea, because I thought, you know, I don't want to make fun of people, you know, the tragedies that various yeah. families had. I, I, You know, I want to address it. And, and, and you've now developed it as a... At the moment, but we're develop at the moment. We're developing it as a as a stage show. As so a as a recital. sort of performance piece, like a yeah, not yeah. a monologue, a recital, a recital, a kind of mm. presence. So some poor actor has got to learn the whole thing. Well, they can read it. I mean, oh right, you know, whatever. Yeah. Anyway, that's not my job. No, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But um, <laughs> so your TV career developed then into making films. Yes. And your first one was a spin-off of the American version of The Thick of It, as it were. Yes, it was a sort of... It was the Brits versus the Americans, because having said The Thick of It was sort of inspired by the... My wanting to know how did something like the Iraq, the invasion of Iraq, happen, I thought, well, let's actually do that story in a film version. You know, get the Brits meeting the Americans and... Mm in a war that neither one of them is all that convinced it's going to go anywhere and see how inevitably it, it happens. Using some of the characters from the thick of it, including Malcolm Tucker, mm. uh, and bringing in some new the Americans for the first time, which is, you know, I was lucky enough to work with James Gandolfini, who plays General Miller. And was it on the Miller. back of that that you, the, the, you, America opened up America yes. TV? Yes. So initially TV. I would go out to Washington. I did lots of research at the State Department, Pentagon and CIA, in fact. Um, but the presence of when the th In The Loop came out, um, HBO got in touch. We'd made this terrible, I say we, the BBC made <laughs> this, sold the thick of it to an American network who made a terrible pilot of it. Right. Um, and I was kind of glad it didn't happen because then HBO said, okay, we saw In The Loop, we'd love to make a Washington show. Which became Veep. Do you, do you want to have a go? So that became Veep. And um, I thought, great, you know, one of my all-time favourite TV shows is The Larry Sanders Show. Mm, same here. Uh, which, Gary, it's an amazing show. It's still, you know, and it, it's a sitcom, but it's not a sitcom. Mm. It's a, it's a behind-the-scenes. None of them are likeable, and yet we like them all. And it just throws all the rules at you and rips them up. Uh, I love that show. So the idea of making something for the network that made uh, The Larry yeah. Sanders Show... The idea of doing something upset in Washington, you know, being a political geek, I just thought this would be great. It won't go anywhere. We'll do the pilot. Nine pilots out of ten get cancelled, mm -hmm. and then I'll come back. And little realising that I'd be out there for the next five years yeah. doing, doing Veep. And and then you went back to films with Death of Stalin? Yep. yep. Which I, I thought was an amazing film. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That was that thing where I, you mentioned treading the line between tragedy and yes. comedy for me you know at the start of the death of Stalin, i said to everyone cast and crew you know we have to be respectful of what actually happened to yes. the people in the soviet union at the time we're not here to make fun of the deaths the comedy as it were is all to do with what's going on in the in the kremlin and then the tragedy is what's happening outside as a result of what's gone inside so that was a sort of mm. balance we had to do um and that, you know, growing up, you know, and what, what, one of my early finds was Shostakovich. His, his, and he's, he's a Russian composer who wrote lots of film music. So his symphonies are very cinematic. So I played lots and lots of Shostakovich as we were writing it and mm -hmm. as, I, as I was shooting it as well. And, and in the early edits, you know, 
using it as temporary mixed music for that. Um, and then Christopher Willis wrote this amazing score, um, which sounds a lot like Shostakovich, but isn't. Um, so again, he doesn't get the credit. The same way Dennis doesn't get the credit for <laughs> coming up with this, the Linton Travel Tavern, because people think it's real. Poor Christopher Willis doesn't get the credit for the music he wrote for the Death of Stan, because people just thought it's obscure Shostakovich. And it isn't. <laughs> Sadly, we've run out of time here on Charlie Higson and Friends. I've, I've really enjoyed talking to my friend today, Armando Iannucci. Yeah, your 24 and, and, hours are up. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and um, it's with great regret that, I, I, that uh, I could have had that extra hour and a half with him on the flight up to Edinburgh. Yeah, we could have shared nuts. <laughs> yeah. Charlie Higson and Friends on Scala Radio. This episode of Charlie Higson and Friends featured an extract of Oh Radiant Dawn by James Macmillan, performed by Harry Christophers and The Sixteen, taken from the album 40, the anniversary collection on Coro Records and available to buy online from thesixteenshop.com. That was followed by a clip of The Armenian Requiem Part 2, Postlude, Blessing of the Land by Ian Krauss. This recording is licensed courtesy of Naxos Music UK Limited and is available to buy from naxos.com. The Charlie Higson and Friends podcasts were originally broadcast on Scala Radio, a radio station that celebrates classical music in all its shapes and sizes. Why not join me, Charles Nove, for breakfast weekday mornings between 7 and 10? It would be wonderful to have you. Scala Radio broadcasts across the UK on DAB Digital Radio, on your smart speaker, the Scala Radio app, and online at scalaradio.co.uk.